Hi guys, and welcome back to the podcast. It has been a while, but uh, we are back. There's three of us today, James, myself, and Luke. Boys, how are you doing? Very good. I'm very well, thanks. Glad uh, to be back after our shockingly bad like, schedule of podcasting. Yeah. I think we're probably the worst offenders now. I'm surprised we'll have any listeners left. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening if you are actually... <laughs> Yeah, this is like the once in a blue moon episode. The, the next one's going to be out in twenty twenty seven. In seven months. Um, today will be more of a Q and A Q&A setup. We put out a, uh, a sticker, if you call it a sticker, on Instagram, and we've got some questions, so we can rattle through them. But um, any news that we want to give people? Um, a bit of news. I say you're going to. Run with it, Luke, or you want me to? Well, like the first bit needs, you can do the second bit. first bit is our website is, is live. Um, and that's not like the, the obviously people know we've been in the process of making a membership um, platform, like an education based website. That is due to launch soon. We, we basically hidden that part of the website for now whilst we kind of populate that with content. But the, the website itself is live. Um, and that is it's simply the musclementors.co.uk. And for those that are interested in the education side, it is available for pre-registration, which is just a case of putting your email down and you know opting for one of the three different tiers, which is all the information's on there. Um, and then we'll kind of notify you when that's going to launch, which is due to be next month. Um, and that's going to be a pretty decent resource for coaches um, and other people as well that just want to learn how to kind of kill the coaching and training game um and in the meantime the website itself um basically has all the information on our courses and camps of the year so people that want to book on to any of the um theory or practical camps we have quite a few dates for them um theory camp is march 7th to 8th um and the practical camp i mean they're all on there but the practical camp Phase one, we've got March 28th, 29th, April 25th, 26th, May 30th, May 31st, and the phase two, and then in the latter part of the year, August 22nd, 23rd, September 5th, September 6th, and October 3rd, October 4th. Um, so if people are able to make any of those dates, um, feel free to go ahead and book on. Um, and it'll be awesome. And that kind of leads us on to the next part of these, which James can speak about now. Yeah, so all these dates will be now held at MK Health Hub in Solihull, just outside Birmingham. Um, we've linked up with them just to say, have all our education running out of one unit um, that's within sort of the Midlands area. Everyone can easily get to it. Beautiful facility. And the guy who runs that, a guy called Matt Kendrick, uh, is about to open a second facility in Birmingham. So we will transition over to that um, for the second half of the year's education when that's up and running. But the first half of the year, we'll all be in the um, facility in Sully Hall. So it's MK Health Hub. So go and check that out, guys. Yeah. And, that's, and the benefit of this one, so for those that have been on our practical camps before, um, is this will be a private facility, which will basically be closed down for us. So we won't have to work around people training when we're doing kind of the exploration on the gym floor. Um, it'll be a nice, nice space, nice quiet space. Um, I think the initial one in Solihull is still going to be pretty easy to get to because that is essentially still it's just outside of Birmingham 
Um, so I think if people are getting trains there, it will be Birmingham International as opposed to um, Grand Central. Yeah, yeah. So there's ample parking. And yeah. There for anyone yeah. who's driving and stuff like that. Yeah. There's um place to eat and stuff like that, or yeah. food-wise and all them type of nice things. Yeah. And the... um in terms of like distance as well like for those that are kind of down south in the london area i mean it is only just over an hour on the train up to Birmingham, so it isn't very far um and given we've had you know people come from ireland scotland and even places in europe it isn't you know it's not too far a commute so if uh if distance is a kind of a factor for you guys then hopefully that puts it in perspective so hopefully you see a lot of people there good guys everyone will travel won't they so it's never gonna be an issue yeah, yeah, that should be should be good, and hopefully we'll see quite a few new new faces there. But also old faces, if there are people that want to reattend, because we have kind of revamped a lot of the stuff on the Brat School, so it should be uh, you know people that want to do the phase two and stuff um, that haven't already should be quite a lot of scope to get some people back on for them. I'd even say just adding on that, we obviously had great success with the phase one. We ran a sort of three packed out courses last year that the, the content will change slightly this year mm. um so for anyone who has done phase one previously it wouldn't be a bad thing to come back on because yes small amounts will be reviewed but there'll definitely be some new stuff in there and go on to obviously do our phase two as well yeah should be lovely and what's new with you cal not much mate not much got a new dog got a new dog the other one, the other one, basically was passed a sell by the I got that stolen by Hannah's mum, so <laughs> <laughs> can't do anything about that. Yeah, just get another one. Get another one. Yeah, he tried to get a cat, but they were yeah, full, didn't work. Didn't have any. Be fair, Barney's still trying to make his way in the house, um, even though he knows there's a puppy here, but he hasn't got in yet. <laughs> oh, Barney the cat. Anyway. Should we crack on? Question one. Open the floor. What's the difference between a strength profile and resistance profile? And how does this apply to training? James? We'll go with this one. Uh, so first we go for a little definition. And obviously you would quote that these are Tom Purvis's definitions. So a strength profile is a grapple, graphical representation of strength um, generating capacity across a range of movements. So basically, like when we think we've got strength. So if you're getting confused between strength and resistance profile, just think that we have strength. So it's basically how strong at any point throughout the range are we? Obviously, that's going to continually change. And then resistance profile is representations in the resistance torque occurring throughout the range of movement. Um, so in a sense, how heavy is that machine? plus any maybe changes in moment armor to respective joints um, as we go in throughout the range. So like sometimes people get confused thinking it's just the machine when we look at the resistance profile. That's the, you could say, sort of predominant thing, but it's only 50% of the equation because then we've also got to look at when we're attached to that machine as well, what effect is that having? Because we never use a machine without a zip. Um, when you look at the resistance profile thing, machines have resistance, so that's to do with the resistance side. We have strength, so we're relative to the strength strength side of it. And how do we apply that to training? Um, that could be a long-winded question, but really, in a sense, the simple way to try and look at it is, look, if a machine's heavy at a certain point in the range, then ideally, 
we'd want to be in a position where we're going to be stronger at that same point in that range. Um, then when we get in a position where we're maybe going to be weaker, that machine would hopefully then be lighter. That's the, one of the key reasons. One, to try and, from an experience point of view or advanced training point of view, to take our training to another level so we can have fatigue throughout hopefully the full range. But then even two, from a very early on point of view or even maybe a rehab point, that we're not going to overload, maybe compromise positions or really weak areas with the exercise or move that's too heavy um, in them compromise the weak positions. So it works at both ends of the spectrum in a sense, but any sometimes in the middle isn't so important. So a lot of times with general pop clients, you could say it's maybe not as important um, if they're somewhere in that mid range, but if someone's working on injury rehab or minimal strength, then real important. And obviously if we're trying to take our training to another level, then it's definitely important to try and understand um, where we're strong, where we're weak, where a machine is heavier and where a machine is lighter. You add to that guys or do you think that's mm. a bit of a, enough for a review at the moment? I think he's nailed it. Mm, that was good. Mm. Essentially how to make your training as efficient as possible. Boom. Yeah. Um, the last thing we want to do is choose two, three different exercises and really we're loading the body maybe in the same way or loading it in the yeah. same, same pattern. So if we're going to have, have a couple of different pushing exercises or exercises, making sure they're all slightly different yeah. rather than the old school thought of doing uh, barbell press, dumbbell press, dumbbell fly. And, yeah. and people will kind of be able to relate to that where they do, if people have done those three movements, you, you'll note that like the top of the movement you're, is generally pretty easy on those relative to the bottom. But then you'll probably have come across some sort of machine-based chest press where you go through the movement and it seems to get a lot harder as you go to, you get to the top. It's not the case with every piece, but that kind of gives an indication of how, you know, machines and stuff can alter resistance profile of certain movements um which is why there's the use in them um mm. people kind of dealing a lot with free weight stuff might not have that same kind of variance available to them um like degree of being able to kind of alter the challenge they're putting on their body so it is uh yeah there's quite a lot of value in that yeah perfect okay there's one for luke Oh. Uh, this was actually specifically for you. How can we improve REM sleep? Uh, that's a good question. Um, wasn't there a question after this that kind of interacts as well? What was the one after this? Uh, it's about blood glucose, the other one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get on to that. But, um, yeah, I mean, REM sleep. So for those that don't know, there's basically, there's technically five stages of sleep. But the um, the... Well, sleep itself is split into various stages. Um, there's basically stages one to three, which is and three is technically split into two, so it's, you call it stages one to four. Um, would be classed as non-rapid eye movement sleep or NREM sleep, um, and that basically makes up what we're looking at sixty-five, seventy to seventy-five percent of total sleep time, and then. The last stage of sleep, um, which you call stage five, but it's, it's typically termed REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, um, is another stage of sleep that kind of, each stage of sleep has its own kind of unique benefits, let's say, or unique um, attributes. Rapid eye movement obviously gets the um, term because that's the stage where we see people's eyes kind of rapidly moving. Um, 
and uh, I mean, there's other names for it, like paradoxical sleep, um, because like the the brain activity during REM sleep is basically identical to that when we're awake. But there's a bunch of stuff that happens that paralyzes our muscles, um, so we can't actually act that out, um, act out what we're dreaming and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, REM sleep itself does have quite a lot of you know benefits. There's no, there isn't one stage of sleep that's more important than the other. You'll get some people that say that um, deep sleep's the most important one, um, or REM sleep's the most important one. I think deep sleep gets touted the most, um, and people are mostly concerned with how to increase that. Um, but ultimately, you know, as Matthew Walker put it, um, if there was one stage of sleep that was not important at all, or more important than the other, whatever, Mother Nature would have axed that a long time ago. So the fact that they're all still present means there's still a role. Um, and I think there was a study where they did, um, they measured it, they used rats and they basically deprived them of deep sleep. They was, you know, this is why you can't do this sort of stuff in humans. They measured how long it took these animals to die, basically, when you deprive them of certain levels of sleep and they did it with mice. And when you deprive them of total sleep time, they died um, within a couple of weeks when you deprive them of deep sleep only it was the same but when you deprive them of REM sleep they actually died like half the time so for rats it seems like REM sleep actually has the biggest link to mortality which is quite interesting um but anyway I digress how to actually increase it the some of it well so, so people obviously need to be aware of whether they do need to increase it um because obviously it will only make up on average 15 to 25 percent of your total sleep time and some people might think that's a low number when they, get, they start tracking sleep and they're like oh i'm only getting 20 percent REM sleep and 20 percent deep sleep and those numbers are actually good because you're constantly cycling between these two stages uh, well all five stages basically um so if that's the number that you're concerned with i wouldn't be if you're getting like barely any you've got to also understand that these sleep trackers aren't 100 percent accurate so that might not be right and if you are having any kind of recollection of being in a dreaming state if you you know we typically will dream mostly in REM sleep but I know times where I look at my sleep track and it will suggest that I've had like no REM sleep but I know that I've had pretty vivid dreams so the chance of having been in REM sleep is pretty high and the trackers probably just not pick that up um so there's that stuff to factor in um but then you've got to factor in things like bedtime and um, typically if people are going to bed quite late because the body will have a kind of a pre-programmed um, way of going through sleep if you're going to bed later in the night and you're therefore experiencing deep sleep in a later point in the night than you normally would um, and this would still happen if people consistently go to bed within like the early hours of the morning um, you know past 12 o'clock they might find that their REM sleep is generally a little bit lower because by the time they would normally be going through REM sleep they're actually waking up so the easiest thing for them to do would be shift their bedtime a little bit earlier and they might find that their REM sleep increases that way. But then the most, the, the most researched way of increasing REM sleep was actually exercise. Um, and in terms of sleep quality in general, there's a huge link between aerobic fitness and uh, kind of normalized sleep architecture. So if people want to, like, if, if people are finding that their sleep architecture is a bit messed up and they're not necessarily spending enough time in the individual stages and they're not also doing a lot of aerobic work, that would be a good thing to do. Um, and then also 
changing the time of day you're training there's been quite a lot of studies where they've found that if people are exercising within the three hours before bed to quite a high intensity they'll see an increase in deep sleep and a decrease in REM sleep um, and largely that will be based to what they think is the massive upregulation in sympathetic nervous system activity in the later part of the day um, and then they're also looking at that being potentially just a kind of adaptive response that the body's got a bit more of a recovery demand placed in it so it kind of prioritizes deep sleep which is the phase of sleep that will see most of that recovery taking place um, so i think changing time of day of training um, and um, uh, working on aerobic fitness could be a good idea for generally improving sleep of all stages and which would probably trans translate to increased rem sleep um, that's probably that one sweet yeah. Any, and then what, what was the next question um, we're, uh, number three, would monitoring blood glucose be useful for a natural athlete? Um, the only, so I would say the only th the reason I like to use blood glucose, I don't use it with everyone. I bet I use it with very few people now. Um, personally, I mean, you, you guys might have different ones. I know when you're enhanced, it's slightly different. Um, but with people that still want to, kind of track that sort of thing the area that i've linked it mostly to is actually sleep itself um, and that's because of how blood glucose is used or blood glucose levels fluctuate during sleep and in deep sleep um which is that kind of occurring earlier in the night it's the stage that's associated with most growth and repair we'll see um kind of we we become pretty much insulin resistant so we tend to have much higher levels of blood glucose and then as we trans uh, um as we cross into REM sleep, um, there's during REM sleep, we generally see quite an increased level of metabolic rate and glucose utilization increases quite drastically. And so one of the things I use if I'm noting that people are having disturbed sleep and it's one of the ways to kind of correlate whether the sleep trackers are accurate or not. And the oil ring um, and the whoop strap actually tend to be quite good at this. Whereas if someone is coming in with low REM sleep and they're, kind of also coming in with higher levels of morning blood glucose that could be chart, you know, indication that they are actually getting lower levels of REM sleep because if you're not getting enough REM sleep you're not possibly going to be burning through some of that glucose that's been raised within the blood through being in deep sleep so as a way of kind of measuring whether or not your sleep is efficient and you're getting into all those stages it can be useful is it necessary no is it you know the sort of thing that people need to be waiting, you know, spending their time on and stressing about, probably not because that won't actually help the situation, but that can be something to use it for. And that's mostly what I would use it for with natural athletes that are kind of that, um, like prepared to take it that seriously. Um, but again, that isn't for everyone. So I wouldn't stress too much about it. Um, but, and, and I mean, w w would you guys add any more in terms of just generally using it as a marker for stress and stuff? I, I prefer to just use resting heart rate and HRV and, those, yeah. uh, and blood pressure. Yeah, I mean that, that, and that. Yeah, and that is those markers will be far easier to take. Less invasive blood glucose itself. It can You know, there could be other mechanisms by which that raised, by which it is raised in terms of like you know people waking up with high levels of morning cortisol that will kind of liberate more stored glycogen into the blood, um, which would um, kind of 
be a part of the stress response so you could use it as a marker for that but again if that was the case you'd be able to use kind of less invasive markers anyway um mm. so i wouldn't stress too much it's also people that do measure blood glucose they do get a little bit held up on um you know was it the number has to be you know below five but you know up to six is technically fine um and you you also want to think that if you're lower than I think the optimal range is like 4.5 to 4.8 or something. And if you are actually significantly below that until I'm sort of like the four mark or below four or, you know, even into the twos, people think that, oh, that's great. I'm really insensitive. That's still not particularly healthy. So if you're, if you are measuring it and you're in that range, then I would maybe speak to an endocrinologist or a GP or someone who's qualified. <laughs> but, um, but that isn't, you know, if people are going to look into tracking it, then be aware of what you're actually tracking. I would say, um, and what is healthy and what's not, because it's not, it's, yeah, it's not the lower the better. Yeah. What? What? How have you um, found the whoop strap relative to the aura ring? By the way, it's cool. I I prefer actually the fact that it's what you you can keep it on while it's charging. It's pretty helpful, um, but also it's. Um, it, it kind of collates more data. It seems to like it will ask you questions on if you have a night of sleep, you wake up and when you kind of input the data, it isn't always the best at tracking it automatically. So I find that I'll quite often have to change the um, times it's assuming I was asleep by, by a couple of hours here and there. So it will kind of register that I was asleep maybe a few hours later, which is probably not a good thing, but I have been quite stressed lately. Um, the, um, and but it does like kind of ask you cool questions on like whether you had any extra caffeine or any alcohol or went on a screen or anything like that, which is quite good. And then it will kind of ask you how recovered you're feeling and signs of soreness. So it's kind of in terms of giving you more of a job to do. It's quite nice, um, and I think it collates some pretty cool data on that front. Um, I don't think I've used it long enough to see the kind of overall effect of what those data inputs do. Um, or like how they change the results but it is pretty pretty interesting um i don't know if it's any more accurate uh, the the, re, the i think it tends to be a little more generous with sleep efficiency um than the aura ring so it might be like five there's a couple of times it was maybe like 10 percent higher than the aura and i would probably give the aura a little more um benefit on that because i don't think the whoop strap tracks movement which is quite big so the, it doesn't track steps, which is a bit annoying. Yeah, I thought that was quite surprising. Yeah, so it doesn't. I don't think it has a motion sensor, um, which obviously means that the aura, as a way of tracking sleep, will probably be superior. Um, but it, as as a tool for all the other stuff like heart rate, HIV, it's going to be pretty pretty cool, and they seem to be pretty bang on. So it's pretty pretty good. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Um, Question number four, the importance of exercise order for hypertrophy, i.e. taxing the short, mid and length and ranges. I think um, as long as we can contribute across the session to a full contractile challenge across that tissue, yes, there'd be an argument that we can probably tax that short and range more effectively, fresh and the first without fatigue. Like personally, in my programming now, I'd move straight onto a movement that loads the mid-range first just because... I want to get the biggest bang for, for buck because I don't have much time to train and I'm not training many times a week. Um, and I can elicit the most damage with those movements. I wouldn't spend time 
on a pet deck for 10 minutes before I press, for example. Um, but yeah, like the, the tissue is still going to get a full contractile challenge through that session anyway. So in my opinion, it doesn't make a huge difference. But what do you think? Uh, I just think it's one of the areas that we need to look at is thrown out there as, yeah, that's real sort of a key buzz thing that's going around for the last good few years. We've got to work the length and mid shortened when, when we're trying to think about programming in general, we've got to think, well, within each exercise, what joint position are we getting to? Mm. Um, if there's a compromised joint position, um, but it's loading maybe the mid lengthened or the short, whichever point it is, do we want to go straight into that? Are they, have they got the skill requirement to perform that? Mm. Um, what's the level of fatigue going to be affected during that exercise? Is that going to have a knock on effect with the next exercise? Yeah. Uh, um, to in, in general, like for yourself, cow performing, even like the free weight barbell bench press, you can get a hell of a lot out of that because it's a movement that you've performed year on year. But again, if we're looking at coaching clients, yeah, I'm be aware of where we put that in. So, and not just think purely, oh, we're loaded in the mid part of the range, or we're trying to create a group profile if they haven't got the skill to skill to do it. So, as with so many questions, it always depends who we're working with. So, I think, are we programming for ourselves, or are we programming for clients? Mm. Are we training general pop clients, or are we training physique athletes? Because mm. um, it can all obviously obviously vary with that. Yeah. I think I think as well. I was definitely in that camp more, you know, a year or so, maybe further ago. But the uh, the more, yeah, you know, where you kind of pick, you know, three exercises to maybe train the delts through their length and mid, short range. And I think the more I've looked into it, the deeper I've gone. The simpler I've my exercise programming has become, but also the more inefficient that kind of approach is. I've realised that is where people are kind of picking three exercises, you know, a dumbbell lateral raise because it will chain the delts in the short range and then a cable one that will kind of peak in the mid range and then a, some other form of a cable that will peak in the length and range, whatever. The, um, when you could literally do that across one movement, and I think that's one of the things that people miss, that you don't necessarily need to split it up into three. And by doing that, it, you know, it could, you're, you're arguably wasting a bit of time. When if you set up a movement, and you can do it on, like, you can't do it on every movement, you can do it on quite a few um like a lateral raise would be a good example you could set that up from the length and range to the mid range where you can create a full range challenge across that one movement and then not really have to spend time doing two others um and that's like if the movement you know if you're getting a lateral raise to kind of drop off a little bit in the length and range and peak in the mid range and drop off in the short range and you can then take that movement to the appropriate level of fatigue and hit you know maximum you know concentric like true concentric failure across that um you know, you, you don't necessarily need to spend time doing a couple of other movements. I think people, you know. The only, for me, the only time that really comes into play working short, mid lengthened is when one, we haven't either got the tools available yeah. Yeah. or available to get it all in as much efficient movement as possible, yeah. or something like maybe the, the lats to get a full spectrum sort of challenge and load. We've got to break it down into a couple of movements. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's like the buzzword of people saying that you know they're overloading at certain points of the range. You, you know, you're not necessarily you're not overloading anything really. Like you do a dumbbell lateral raise, you're not overloading the short range. You're kind of creating a challenge that's peaking in the in the short range, but you're neglecting the mid and length range. So nothing's really being overloaded, um, and it, and also you know 
muscles it doesn't mean like the muscles only going to respond and grow in that short range of you know some people believe it's it's kind of you are ultimately just being inefficient and you could do that across one movement with a cable potentially um and i think that's that's what's been a little bit lost with this sort of thing people piecing together kind of elaborate supersets trisets and things that you know look good for instagram but aren't necessarily actually the best way to spend your time Good for the likes. Yeah. What was that, James? So I just repeating really that the efficiency thing is key. Yeah. So we've got yeah. two hours to spend in the gym. We don't want to be choosing five exercises to work the chest yeah. or the delts. We want to say how efficient can we to be to get this job done? Yeah. yeah, and I did. I did this with um, Joe Jeffrey in his last program where I'd previously put stuff in for his delts where kind of there'd be a, a focus on a movement that you know, the resistance was peaking in the short range and then there would be one that was peaking in the length of range and, you know, the mid-range and stuff. And he asked, he was like, okay, how, how can we step away from that? You know, what was the rationale? You know, sh- should we not be still including that? And I said, no, you know, because, you know, the, the movements we pick now and we've been specific with how we'd set it up according to him, he was getting, you know, the same stimulation across maybe one or two movements that he was previously getting across four. Um, and spending less time in the gym and seeing the same level of progression. So that was kind of ultimately the same, you know, same end result, really. Less time wasted. Try and maybe give people an example. Obviously, I know, Cal, you were talking about like doing a um, push session, go straight into a heavy push exercise. So initially, we might choose something like sort of a banded Smith press um, to warrant obviously making that a bit lighter at the bottom, where we're a bit weaker, and then heavier at the top, where we're a bit stronger. Um, and a second exercise could be something like a, a dumbbell press where the still requirement is still relatively high for a lot but we're not that fatigued that we still can't sort of have the awareness for that um, and we're getting into a shorter position um, at the top of a dumbbell press than we are a smith press so there's no we've no need to overload that obviously at all but some people that fatigue will be too much compared to the relative drop-off you get in with a dumbbell as that starts to load over the shoulder. So we need to have aware of that. But for some people, that work, may work as a quite congruent movement mm. as they reach such fatigue, especially at that second point in the workout, as they do push through, um, that could work as quite a congruent exercise yeah. um, with fatigue. And then that third exercise could be a, a cuff cable fly, even as a cable fly in general, where we're trying to really get a maximal drop-off in that short range because we are getting so fatigued now so every one of them we've taken into account something to do with the resistance profile relative to the strength profile um rather than just thinking i would just work in the first exercise mid second exercise length and third exercise shortened and we've tried to take into consideration getting as much out of each as possible with the with the setup and obviously the cuff cable flies tough to just talk about setup you need to see that yeah and there's yeah yeah, and I think it brings in stuff that we talk about more in our on our practice camps as well. Like people looking at exercise order is the kind of the most you know the thing that's the most important. But I think you know exercise order once you understand anatomy well enough and strength profiles, resistance profiles, how to set the exercises up according to an individual, they become it becomes more clear cut. And I think there's more room to kind of vary things like tempo and where you're applying load to a joint and you know things like that that they can have almost more of an effect when it comes to actually maximizing hypertrophy because you get into the deeper levels of like motor recruitment and 
how much mechanical tension you're able to to produce according to how much fatigue you've got and stuff like that. So it's, um, there's more to explore, I think, and that's like some of the I mean some of the stuff we'll go into on the site to be fair. But the um, but for those that want to come on our seminars as well, shameless plug. That's where you, you'll kind of probably be introduced to that because there aren't a lot of people talking about that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's um, I think exercise order isn't as complicated as people need to make it. Yeah. Because people try and make it, sorry. It looks sexy. Yeah. Which sells. Does sell. Um, Speaking of selling, next question. <laughs> what are your opinions on the Game Changers Netflix documentary and plant-based diets? Yeah. This one's going to be quick. I mean, I, I'll give my view on this. I think it's... In fact, let me pull up a message I sent to a client that um, messaged me. She said, have you watched Game Changers on Netflix yet? And I said, no, sir. I'm not wasting my time. And he said, oh, it's blowing up at work. Half the bloody office have gone vegetarian vegan this week. So I watched it this morning to see what the hype was about. And my response was, it's awful. Send them Lane Norton's video destroying it. Um, it's poorly researched, awfully biased, and just straight up, straight up scaremongering. I'm not the hugest fan of Lane Norton, but he is bang on the money with that. And he goes through the, the science properly, kind of picks up how poorly researched and cherry-picked all their information is and um, basically it's a scaremongering propaganda piece by James Cameron who is invested in that side of the market by because he owns a pea protein company so he's kind of made that to kind of drum up a bit of business for himself which fair play mate but when you've got people that are willing to double you know, fact check the science is not always going to come off that well and for those that are interested in in that then I'll check it out yeah and it's also the fact that you know on a you know plant-based diets in general plant-based diets are good and i think every I, my diet is plant-based in the sense of it is majority majoritively um fruit and veg probably but the um it, i still eat meat because we're humans that have evolved with digestive tracts that are designed to break down animal protein and i think people that go the other way the extreme, you know, we're not meant to be wholly carnivore. We're not meant to be wholly vegan. Um, evolution can tell us that much. And um, I think when you look at the health outcomes of either of those approaches, they're not that good in the long term. Like veganism doesn't come off any any better. It comes off generally worse for health um, because of all the deficiencies people inevitably pick up unless they're supplementing heavily. So it's um, it's you know, it's not the healthiest option. And from an ethical standpoint, fair play. Um, but um, you know, from a health standpoint, there isn't anything crazy about it. Yeah, I agree. Me too. <laughs> I wonder what Ryan. Ryan would probably disagree, but he's not here. I'm yeah. kidding. He wouldn't disagree. Anyway, so next question: um, myostatin and folostatin. Is it something we should actively take into consideration? Anyone? I'm just going to just say no. Yeah, I would say no. So people don't know what they are. Myostatin is basically a protein within muscle tissue that inhibits muscle growth, and folostatin is one that essentially enhances it. No, you, there's not, not worth considering. But yeah, there's genetic differences in terms of some people you know, express one or the other more than, more than other individuals. Um, which is like, you know, you see these pictures of cows that have had like my, myostatin gene inhibited and they're absolute 
Holt cows. Um, but the you know, there's it's not something we can control. I think there's a couple of things like, for instance, resistance training actually leads to an increased expression of myostatin. So the more you train, the more your body actually tries to inhibit muscle growth. I believe that's the case. I I wanna I could be fact checked on that so anyone can fact check me on that. There's some relationship between resistance training and myostatin, I believe it was that. Um but they're not really things we can control. And I think it's kind of you know, if people are they probably do play a big role in terms of how much tissue people can inevitably build. Um, but you're not really ever going to be able to change that. And that's probably just one of the things that goes into the genetics of muscle growth. Mm. And I think if people get held up on how can I alter my levels of myostatin and follistatin, you're probably going to be wasting a lot of time. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it because there's nothing you can do about it to any meaningful degree anyway. Mm. Yeah. Tips for managing DOMS when work when I work night shifts. James, you want to say that? One? You work night shifts, Luke. Oh, this isn't it. <laughs> In general, to manage DOMS, we know we've got to stay out of loading the sort of that length in one third. So you go back to looking at exercise order, exercise selection, um, and thinking which movements within what's going on with the weight stack, the machine that we're using, whether relative moment arms to the joints, uh, are we getting an increase in load requirements, torque requirements in sense in that length and position? So more programming mid to short range stuff is going to help uh, reduce DOMS in general. So anything we can do sort of program wise, obviously to try and sort of work with that will be the best way to go with it. Yeah. I'd also question why he's getting them in general, because there's, in terms of, if he's a consistent trainee, you know, there's a thing called the repeated bout effect, which is one of the things that is, you know, they've related that to where it's associated with muscle damage and DOMS. It's one of the things that when we kind of will get DOMS initially and then over the course of a training program, we'll stop getting it and we'll express markers of muscle damage. And then within a week to two weeks, that will you know, this, to the same stimulus, we won't get the same response. So I think if you're consistently getting DOMS and consistently training chance style, you're probably overdoing something. Mm. So I think the biggest thing would be pull back um, on something wherever you're getting them because DOMS isn't something that you really want. Um, I think that's, yeah, I, don't, I personally think you could just, re, this guy could readdress his training and figure out where he's overdoing it and how to, how to stop getting them basically yeah reviewing his uh, volume yeah with everything over the week yeah uh, how many reps stuff will work out could that be spent more over the week maybe rather yeah. than if you, if you do it in 12 15 sets per body part yeah yeah and that yeah i mean that's probably what's happening to him i imagine he's overdoing it or He's not overdoing it, and because you're on night shifts, your recovery is so fucked that you. Because <laughs> I mean, that could be a thing. Like, I don't know how frequently this guy's doing um, night shifts, but you know, the the I said this to numerous people. Well, a couple of clients that do have night shifts, but people that were ill over Christmas, like the immune system plays such a huge role in recovery from training. It's like ultimately the main driver of recover of you know driving the hypertrophic response, and. Um, it's also one of the things that gets absolutely tanked when you work night shifts and sleep deprive yourself. So there could be an, you know, some relationship there. Maybe you want to consider 
trying to manage the recovery from night shifts a bit better. Um, I think uh, I think we've spoken about that on a podcast. Um, yeah, we have. I mean, that's too much to go into here, but there's there's some good stuff you can read and that just type night shifts and journal articles, and you'll probably get loads. Um, but also, I think uh, is it the nutritional advocate um, Alan Flanagan? He's amazing in that area, so I'd check him out. Is the the nutritional advocate on Instagram? Um, he's uh, he's he's kind of specialised in that area, so he might be able to help. But again, I think it's going to be manage improve sleep, manage recovery from night shifts, and stop overtraining. Basically, that'll probably be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next question. Eight tips for maximising every individual coaching client's potential. I think the key word there is the word individual. So <laughs> I know. I mean, to be fair, it's a good question, but that's so broad, it's not even fair. That's like that's like the 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 title of a two day seminar. Yeah, that actually could be. Um, I think from a, like a coaching perspective, again, I assume this person's working with like a general pop type of client because if we've got prep people who are working with, generally they're going to do everything we tell them. Um, so it's more just looking at the, the mindset side of things, so what routines they got, what are their habits, because um, if we can have some sort of guidance in terms of maybe morning routine, evening routine, when they're eating, how they're eating, obviously when they're training, get some structure in there, giving them a bedtime, giving them a wake up time. All these things that sound so simple in a sense. And I think sometimes early days as trainers, we're trying to look for the sexy stuff where if we manage the routines, the habits, we look at certain things that are going on, just mindset wise with them, then we're going to get the most out of the client. We're going to get the best potential from them. And then our training program, then our diet plan, everything else we advise in, um, we can get the most from they're able to implement it. Yeah, and that's like what you speak about on the theory count with like the mindset side of things and setting up people's lifestyle to make everything very seamless when it comes to um, kind of the whole process itself. Yeah, I know for me over the years my coaching application has got simpler and simpler. Yeah. Within all areas, whether it's nutrition, training, sort of mindset, lifestyle-wise, in the early days, we try and go for such complex things. I think that can probably all be taken into account for us training-wise. I know that we're trying to look for that sexy exercise or that different exercise when it comes back to the, the basics. And that's no different when we're coaching clients. We try to look at such complex things, but have we looked at some key routines within the lifestyle? Are we even addressing that as a coach, or do we just give them a nutrition and training program? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the quicker way of doing it is to just ram them full of Trent. That will get them there. Generic plans. Uh, so that's not medical advice, people. <laughs> on, that, on that note, question 13, Jade, you're the, because you're the psychology, psychology expert here, because he's the oldest, he's the wisest, obviously. I think you say on the note of Trent. <laughs> <laughs> my, my limiting factor is my mind. Best resources for working on self-belief mindset. That's an open field. Um, go and see Tony Robbins. Yeah, go and listen to Tony Robbins. Ed Milet. Oh, God, he's good. Yeah, can't be. Oh, I'll tell you, there's a good interview that this guy should watch with Ed Milet and Bedros Koulian, um, spelt if you go on youtube and type in i think everyone should watch this it's fucking mind-blowing um 
it's it, the guy he's ed bedros i think it's meant for business people and there's a lot of mindset stuff in there but people within the industry um but the interview is amazing for um kind of getting a handle on you know motivation and kind of self-belief and all that stuff it's amazing I'd say like something that going back to Anthony Robbins, like you mentioned that something that he talks about massively is the ability to change our state. Yeah. Um, if you look at even a lot of um, people in great shape, they're able to change their state going into that working set in an instant. They're like, they'll do some sort of habit or routine or something to focus them, focus them and dial them in. That if we've got the ability to really, I think, at any moment in time, change our state, mm -hmm. then and that's huge. And like Anthony Robbins talks about it just by doing through movement. So within um, his seminars and stuff like that, it'll get you moving just to get different endorphins and stuff. Pumping up to get make it straight away, get you feeling better. Um, but if we can, I think, change our state, then that can help us get more out of training so we can get really dialed in and in the moment when we're performing a set. Um, but it's finding something that is driving us. Even to be able to talk a lot about uh, what's our what's our purpose, finding your purpose in life. But I think it's more just find something you're passionate with, and then you'll have purpose. Yeah. Mm. If you've got passion, then with that, that'll lead to lead to purpose. Yeah, and that's what that that one with this guy I just said is about. I think the actual title of the video is "Stop Searching for Your Passion," but it's basically about realizing what your passion is. Yeah. So. Is fucking good. Yeah. yeah. But resource-wise, mindset. Cal Dweck, uh, great book. Um, Psycho-Cybernetics. So that's one that Dan Smith spoke speaks a lot about. Um, he's mentioned that before. Some I like some old school stuff. If we're talking about mindset, Zig Ziglar. Uh, so that's great one just to put on the car when you're driving and just listen to how to stay motivated. Um, art of possibility I can't remember the authors for that but it's another good one that you could just play literally a couple of times in the background and the car stuff like that um, can't beat some of Napoleon Hill stuff if you're looking at um, just sort of mindset wise it goes back that so many of the different mastermind people out there stuff like that that comes back to so many of the things that Napoleon Hill talked about um, in thinking very rich even like success habits his book as well is another great one that summarizes a lot of it um, but I think don't assume that your mind should always be in a good place. It's like, are you implementing something every day to maybe work on that? Same as we're implementing something nutrition and training wise, stuff like that. So we've got to try and almost sometimes implement whether it's half an hour reading on mindset, on personal development, on something that's going to keep you in a good place. Mm. Um, rather than just assuming that your mindset should always be positive and pushing forward. Yeah. And that's like the whole thing of like when people are embarking on that journey to improve that side of things, like it's okay sometimes if you don't feel great and you have shit days, like that's part of the process and then kind of implementing strategies to be able to process that and get past it. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, yeah, when people kind of start following all these stupid positive people and they're like, I have to be 100% positive all the time. It's like, you, you, it's all right. You know, it's human to have the odd shit day and feel crap. Mm -hmm. And feel stressed, but well, that's it. Right, we're coming up to that fifty-minute mark now, so we'll put. Well, I reckon that we could save the others for another a second part because it's quite okay, yeah. few. Unless you want to do one more, let's do one more. Um, let's do 
Um, what about what's the relevance of the trunk work we see you post on YouTube? Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, well, ultimately, it's a case of, like, you know, I mean, James can add, will add to this, but, um, you know, people that want to maximise their force output throughout any of their extremities, um, particularly their lower body, but, you know, people that are doing a lot of these bigger movements, these, you know, compound movements, and they're not training their trunk, they haven't got the kind of, you know the strength present within their spinal flexors lateral flexors rotators extensors whatever to kind of you know maximize the performance of the other you know the muscles that are attaching into the you know across the pelvis onto the spine whatever it is they're not ever going to be able to get 100% out of them and if they're trying to maximize mechanical tension through those areas and and kind of get as big as they can through those or get as strong as they can they need strength in the other areas that are supporting um, you know, if you if you want to maximally produce force through your through the limbs of your lower body that mostly all cross the hip and a lot large amount of them attached onto the spine, you need the kind of strength on the other guys that attach onto the spine to manage that force that's being produced. And if that strength isn't there in those, you know, the, the kind of the managing muscles, the the joint managers as you'd hear in RTS, then the resistance fighters, you know, the guys that are actually fighting the resistance that you're dealing with. So in this case, the guys with the lower body, they're not going to be able to produce as much as they could. Um, and um, and people will notice this. Like I've got a little issue in my left shoulder at the moment that if I apply too much force through it, like or in a in a way that it doesn't really like my body and it's noticeable i can't apply as well i'm not as strong through my left side um and that's my body's way of going some stuff's not working around the shoulder so i'm not giving you 100 percent of that that lateral delt because whereas i do it on the right side of my right lateral delt can you know is twice as strong nearly at the moment so it's there's um you know you need kind of balance throughout the entire body and you need this kind of orchestrated you know everything needs to be working together in kind of a symphony um and um and i think that's where putting stuff in where you can directly train those guys in an efficient manner in an easy way is quite a good thing to do um and people that are worried about like training their waist and their waist growing that's so unlikely um because obviously you know there's a difference between getting strong through tissues and adding adding muscle there you know adding tissue there so if you you're likely to get where well, you will get stronger a lot quicker than you add tissue but also the size of those muscles themselves you know if even if you added like yeah if you were to add an amount of tissue that would equate to maybe an inch increase in waist circumference the amount of tissue you'd have to add would be obscene given the amount of surface area there so i wouldn't actually worry about that um but yeah it's basically a case of if you want maximum performance and prevent you know injury prevention and just generally a well-functioning body it's probably a good idea to train them what do you reckon james yeah it's, um you know, it's, it's a summarize in a sense so it's like we're only as strong as our weakest link don't assume that if your lower back's fatiguing doing a, a rack pull or deadlift or whatever it is that that's the only thing that needs strengthening yes that may need strengthening but the key things maybe what what range of movement are you working to? Um, are you staying in with appropriate range? Are your glutes, are your hip extenders, um, are your lats, so everything below, everything above the spine, is that firing up optimally? Yeah. So just because the lower backs on the next size, um, don't assume that that is directly the weak link because there might be other things that just aren't doing enough. So mm. that's good. If not, then, oh yeah, my lower back's feeling, I need to go and do direct short trunk work. Mm. 
yes, that maybe need to be applied to in programming, um, but it may be more importantly that your, your glutes, your hamstrings aren't doing the job. Everything through the upper back as well isn't doing its job. Um, yeah. You're taking yourself into a range that you haven't got actively available. Oh. So I think that's when we watch people deadlift, when you watch people rack pull, when you watch people squat, most of them aren't designed to do it or they're trying to force themselves into a, a generic position they see everyone else doing. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, I think it's just looking at going, kind of stepping back. and It's like looking at the bigger picture, but then going in and looking at the, what is it, what's the, the term in um, the microscopic view versus the satellite view, kind of understanding all the pieces that fit the puzzle as well as the looking at the puzzle itself. But the um, like my, a good example of this kind of, thought process is one that michael goulden of integra spoke to me about where he was telling me where he's telling my dad actually because my dad's the cyclist because my dad's PTing with him as well and i sit in on the sessions and he was saying how there was one cyclist he was working with uh, that michael was working with that you know that she needed to be she needed to improve her performance and she couldn't work out where she was breaking down and she was focused on where is it in my lower body that i'm breaking down because that's all i'm using as a cyclist and it turned out her issue was actually her, her protraction strength on in her scapula so around her scapula because obviously she's holding the handlebars and it was basically she wasn't strong enough through those guys to maintain that position that she needed to on the bike um when she's leaning on the handlebars and so she was losing so much force through that area and then they basically you know strengthened that up and suddenly she added she basically started winning all her races um and you know there's, so there's all these people that are kind of focused on you know the areas that they think of the most importance but they're kind of forgetting that actually there's these other places that they need to train that will complement that in the long run um because the body needs to work in what as like a kind of one whole like symphonic unit you could say um but yeah huh that was a big word symphonic unit yeah i don't even know if symphonic's a word but oh. i was going for symphony yeah Anyway, but yeah, that's um I think that's a cool cool one to end on. Mm, very good. Um right, sweet. We'll save the other ones for the next episode. Um a little shout out to our sponsor. We're about to actually get a new one, which is quite interesting. We won't cool. know yet. Um as always, um supplement needs, getting all of your supplement needs. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, many checks for your blood work raw optics for your blue blockers and uh, seeming prep is coming around and everyone's going to be starving and on low calories loader now comes back into its own um, muscle mentors uh, all lowercase no gaps for the discount code for all of those I think they're all up I hope they're not case sensitive because I've got them as uppercase but <laughs> I, I, I don't know actually, I, don't but, I, I don't think they're case sensitive but Try uppercase if that doesn't work. Try lowercase, but it should be muscle mentors. Um, yes, yeah, sweet. Lovely, lovely. Good stuff. Well, good to be back. Yeah, it's very good. We're regular now, are we? Say again? We're going to make it a regular routine. Yes, we are. Yeah. Next one coming next decade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sweet. All right, boys. That was a pleasure. Yeah, as ever. Thank you. We'll um, speak to you soon. And people check out the website and go easy because it's the first website I've ever made and I'm not a professional at it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Bye. Bye-bye.